0: So earlier this evening, I was speaking about having faith and confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and I want to recount the experience I had when my understanding of uh, taking refuge in and having faith in the Sangha was really um, revealed to me. In the monastery where I was practicing in Burma, The schedule was to wake up about 3 and to do your wash up and stuff and then sit and walk until breakfast was going to be served at 5.30. So every morning there was a sitting from about 4 to 5 or 4 to 5.30. And at the end of the sitting or whenever you chose to prepare your robes and to get ready for breakfast, uh, we would. I would come out of the hall, the meditation hall, the, foreign, the hall where foreigners practiced, and I would fix my robes in order to go for breakfast, and I'd wait beside my teacher's cottage, which is just down the hill from where the dining room is. And in that last sitting of the morning just before breakfast, is when the Burmese men and women would, at the end of the sitting, they would chant the refuges, the precepts, and the metta. And so I'd be standing in the, beside my teacher's cottage, and I would hear the meditation hall of women up by the dining room uh, begin their chant. And this, this hall could hold 15 to 1,800 women. And sometimes they were that many, sometimes 2,000. And so these women would be, they'd start their chant, and it's about a five-minute, seven-minute chant, I don't know, something like that. And they would start their chant, and Burmese women are very devout, they're very sincere, and they're very energetic. So when they chant, they're just really belting it out, mm-hmm. a lot of soul in there <laughs> chanting. and. Uh, it was really inspiring it was really moving just to hear that and then they'd be into their chant 30 seconds or a minute or something and there was another meditation hall of women a little bit further down the hill but it was a two-story meditation hall there was 500 on the bottom floor or 500 on the top floor and those two floors wouldn't chant together but one of them would start chanting and they'd get going and then the other one would start a few seconds or 30 seconds later and they'd start chanting now you've got two or three thousand women chanting, and then there was a men's meditation hall across the road from them, and that would hold about twelve hundred, and they would start their chant. And then further down the hill past where I was, there was another meditation hall for Burmese men that would hold to another thousand or twelve hundred. So sometimes there'd be two, three, four, four thousand, five thousand people chanting with just the The most sincerity and just heartfelt uh, uh, faith in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, and their gratitude for um, the teachers and the monastery, and the loving kindness for all beings. And it was just uh, when I was standing there, I would I realized at some point early on that you know, they're they're Burmese and they have a different economic, a different political system, they speak a different language, whatever, they're Buddhist and I'm, I'm something else. But their expression of their heart's faith and willingness to take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha was no different than mine. And I understood then with that uh, reflection that what they were also expressing is no different than men and women, monks and nuns have expressed towards Buddhist teaching since the time of the Buddha. You know, for twenty five hundred years, twenty almost twenty six hundred years now, there have been men and women, monks and nuns, chanting the Refugees and Precepts daily, and also practicing Metta. And it was just a uh, An experience that collapsed uh, the idea of difference in time, space, gender, nationality, to just this common uh, common element of wanting to be free of suffering, which is universal. And that we had a common uh, understanding of how that was possible, or what we had. Or that we had faith in, how that was possible. And it was a real uh, feeling of uh, communion with uh, people that I didn't see really, and didn't talk to, and didn't have any knowledge of, other than that their heart was in the same space as mine, or my heart was in the same space as theirs, as regards the what is maybe most important us in our life, taking refuge and practicing the dharma. And then at this monastery, in the first weekend of December, uh, the founder of the monastery was Mahasi Sayadaw, and he had passed away back in 89, I think. But they would have a festival every year, and there were four or five hundred centers, monasteries, meditation centers in Burma alone that were within this tradition, Mahasi Sayadaw, tradition of practice. And when they had the festival, they would um, invite all of the senior monks who were teaching the meditation, that method of meditation in the country, and the nuns who were teaching to come to Rangoon and to kind of celebrate, to kind of gather as the Dhamma family, and just to celebrate their... Connection in that practice, and to honor their their founding teacher Mahasi Sayadaw. And during this time, there was just when the monks or nuns would show up, they would come with a entourage of attendants and food, and it was just it was just a just a magnificent festival. It was just so high, man. It was like better than Woodstock. It was like Dhamma Woodstock or something. It was really pretty special and uh, there were there were uh, broadcast over loudspeaker dharma talks from like 5 in the morning every hour different different teacher different uh, speaker up until 10 at night just constantly for four or five days but when monks gather like this they always um, there's a very strict protocols in in monastic uh, lifestyle and Monks who are junior to another monk, meaning you've been ordained for less time, pays respects to the senior. And that's the first thing that monks always decide when they meet a new monk is, how, how many years have you been a monk? You know, How many, how many three-month retreats have you done, wasas? And they always decide. And whoever's the junior will immediately then bow to the senior. And sometimes they've had the same number of wasas, so then they have to know, well, On what day did you get ordained? What hour did you get ordained? So to figure out who's the junior and who's the senior, and then they would pay respects. So when there was this gathering of all the elders of this tradition, when it was time for breakfast at 5.30, then uh, of course the eldest monks get to go first in the dining room, and the way it would work is um, up at the dining room, up over the hill, it's a 100, 150 yards away, walk up this little paved roadway around the women's meditation hall. In behind the women's meditation hall is this big dining room. <clears throat> and the way they call you to breakfast is they have this log, you know, like a eight-foot log hollowed out inside that they hit with another log, swing it on a rope, and it makes these reverberating, thumping sound. And you can hear it for a long ways away. It's not a bell, but it's a thumping sound. So you'd hear this whomp, whomp, whomp. And it's just like the whole, the whole atmosphere just vibrates. So powerful. And then you'd know that, oh, you could line up and, and go to breakfast. And one of the uh, organizing monks of the monastery would, would step out into the roadway. And he would say, um, 65 wasa, meaning any monk who'd done 65 three-month range retreats, he was at least 85 years old, because you have to be 20 to ordain, could go to breakfast. And there might be one monk, 85 years (laughs) old, kind of come out of the shadows along the buildings and kind of start trudging up the hill. And then he'd say, 64 wasa, and another monk would come out or whatever. And they would slowly work their way down the ages to where they where there were more monks. And when they get down to you know fifty wasa and forty wasa, that's only you know sixty years old. There was more. You know, there'd be a dozen at a time stepping out into the pathway and following the elders up over the hill. And they would get down to uh, ten wasa, meaning they were thirty years old. And that's the youngest of the monks that they would let come to this festival because they just didn't have enough room. And there'd be just dozens stepping out into the pathway then and following this long line of monks up the hill. But I was, I was the junior most, and uh, I only had one wasa, or two wasa, <laughs> three wasa. Eventually I got five wasa, five, five years monk. And uh, then I would they'd get down to ten, and then after all the tens went, then I would just get in line. And I was always the last one, you know. And it was really interesting when I would step out there and just kind of start walking up the hill. I'd look at this long line of monks who were all teachers in this tradition, you know, monks and teachers in this tradition. This long line, and you could see it go up the hill. And sometimes it was foggy, and go around the corner behind the women's meditation hall. And I had this image. That in my mind, that somewhere up at the head of the line was the Buddha, because the Buddha was the founder of the the whole monastic tradition, and uh, you know he realized the truth, and he turned to the other monks around him or the other renunciates around him, and said, you know, if you see, if you look at things this way, you can be free of suffering, and they heard what he said, and they practiced and realized. And then they turned to the others who were interested to hear around them and said, hey, if you look at things this way, you can be free of suffering. And this is the way the teachings of the Buddha have been handed down from the Buddha down through 2,500 years to Mahasi Sayadaw. And Mahasi Sayadaw taught Sayadaw Upandita. And Sayadaw Upandita taught me. And I used to think I was the last person in the line But now, I'm teaching you. So it is up to all of us and all of you to hear the teachings, to practice as well as you can, to realize what you can, to be able to pass it on to the next generation. Because there are untold numbers of unborn, as yet unborn, human beings who are going to want to hear these teachings and the only way they'll hear them in a very uh, authentic or practical way is if we realize for ourselves the value of these teachings so that we have something to, to to offer them so i'm no longer the last one in the line mm-hmm. and that's what it means to me to to ha- take refuge in the sangha both the sangha that went before us and the sangha that follows behind us because If, in case, just in case, I don't finish the job this lifetime and I have to come back, I want the teachings to be available. (laughs) I I don't want to come back if there's no teachings available here. So I have to do my part now to ensure that they'll be there next time. Right? So think of it that way, like, oh, we're doing it for ourselves later, later. just in case. you know. So when I take refuge in the Sangha, or when I have faith in the teachings of the Buddha, or to have faith in the Sangha, that's what it means. I really, I see that it has been possible for nearly 2,600 years, and I believe it'll be possible for another 2,600 years. We just have to do our part. Have a good night.